Folks, my goal today is to confuse you beyond your wits. And then after I confuse you, David is going to straighten you out. No. I would like, before we get started, to uh, pass this out. Now, please forgive me that uh, it says on the bottom, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, of which I am a member, so uh, forgive me for that. But I would like for each of you, if you mind, and this is completely anonymous, to rip one of these pieces of paper out. And personally, I would like for you to write down in just a sentence or a phrase how you know you are a born-again Christian. How you know you are a born-again Christian, all right? Does that make sense? So, I'm going to give this, and, and you know, don't, uh, just a sentence. You know, what, what evidence or what do you base the fact that you're a born-again Christian on? Just write it down. I will collect them. And then at the end of the class, I will read through them, and we don't want any names. All right. Now, before we get started on that, uh, I have asked my wife to read something. You have it? Yeah. To read something that she wrote years and years ago, uh, but she just recently had it published. And... Uh, she has gone through two cancers, and she wrote about the second one, and uh, she has an interesting way. You know, she, she's kind of my hero when it comes to writing, okay, everybody? Are you going to stand up here behind the lectern? Okay. She's going to replace You know what she's saying? Yes, this is, this is called replacement theology. No, no. Anyway, let me... Uh, but anyway, she, uh, she has a few introductory comments. Um, first, I want to say that my experience is not unique and it's not even bad compared to what a lot of people, what millions of people have gone through, millions of Christians, and what many of you in this room have gone through. So uh, don't compare. It's just that any trial, the book of James tells us, can be a holy experience. So the article is about seeing your trials as, as a, a, an experience to, in holiness, an exercise in holiness. I have a holy of holies in my home, a place where nothing interrupts my solitude with God. Neither phone calls, media messages, nor family members intrude when I enter it. Only God and I meet there daily in this holy place. Now, I'm not an especially disciplined Christian, but I am a clean one because I'm talking about my shower stall. <laughs> a place for taking inventory, reporting for duty, 
unloading my burdens. There I can weep without scaring my family. Soul gets cleansed along with body. I have no prayer list to get through or, or formula to, to follow. Just the reality of God with me. Emmanuel, struggling with God. One year, my shower sanctuary turned into Gethsemane's garden when my soapy fingers felt a lump. Surely it would not be malignant. Haven't I done everything right? Nursed all my babies, grown and preserved my own food, no addictive substances. I bet it had been 10 years since I had a Big Mac with fries. <laughs> and what about all those aerobics classes? With no family history, surely I could dodge the breast cancer bullet. But when the doctor called it suspicious, I responded the way I usually do to trials. What did I do to deserve this? Why me? What about our trip to Scotland to visit our daughter and husband? Having already survived a different type of cancer, I didn't think I needed a remedial course. Arrogantly, I thought I had learned the cancer lesson about surrender and accepting God's inscrutability Yet, here we go again. Under the shower, I railed at God. Why do you give me a stone when I ask for bread? I thought you were my loving father, but you are such a hard taskmaster. Are you punishing me for some sin in my past? When circumstances sideline me, I can forget God's generosity faster than Peter forgot his promise to stand by Jesus. Fortunately, God is patient and, in my case, long-suffering. Two surgeries later, I was pronounced stage one. No chemo necessary. God is merciful. With the lump removed and no cancer in the lymph nodes, I told my surgeon, thank you very much. I hope I never see you again. <laughs> oh, no, he answered. I'm in your life for good. Then he told me about frequent mammograms, regular checkups, and estrogen-blocking meds after I had 35 radiation treatments. Radiation? I told God I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it, especially after I read about the side effects, the burned skin, scar tissue, possible deformity. Two doctors told me I would need corrective surgery afterward. One woman undergoing radiation showed me her chest. It was dark maroon. No thanks. However, one evening in my Holy of Holies, I did the surrender thing again. I started focusing on what I had left, not what I had lost. The lump was small and caught early. I had lumpectomies, not a mastectomy. Sentinel lymph node was clear, no chemo. The airline even refunded all but $100 when we canceled our Scotland trip. Gratitude grew as I thanked God for each evidence of his goodness. My husband and my medical insurance both encouraged radiation. If not, and the cancer returned, I would regret that I did not do everything the doctors had recommended. So I started entering another Holy of Holies at 3.15 p.m. every weekday. There I laid my body on the altar so part of me could be carefully burned. While lying still, I poured out to God the needs of my family and church during the 10 minutes it took for the procedure. I remember my husband telling me, every day at 3.15 p.m. I pray for you. 
I said those same words back to him. And we smiled at this new aspect of marriage unity. At 10.15 p.m. in Scotland and at 4.15 p.m. in Wheaton, my daughters prayed for me. My son set his watch alarm for 3.15 and remembered me. According to Romans 8, we joined the prayer circle of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. This mystical reality amazes and comforts me. My car also became a holy place. On my way to the hospital every day, I would sing Charles Wesley's words, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Hide me, O oh my Savior, till the storm of life is past. All my trust on thee is stayed. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. When I received the cancer diagnosis, I had asked friends to give me scriptures, and I made them into a card pack of battle verses for cancer. To contradict, to counteract radiation fatigue, I took walks with my card pack, flipping through the verses and meditating or praying God's words back to him, walking with God in the literal sense. An additional mystery began to emerge. God can teach me the most from situations I understand the least. That which hurts me can also heal me. I can choose to groan or to grow. My two cancer experiences broke my will, but also bonded me into new intimacy with God and new fellowship with those who pray for me. My radiation holy of holies was temporary. Cancer reveals that everything about life is temporary, except my eternal relationship with God. Being alone with Him reminds me that I am never alone. I enjoy Him more now than I did before my affliction. He is not a demanding father or a mean master, but a wise and loving coach. His training process hurts, but also helps me develop spiritual muscles and endurance. When he gives me extra laps, it's for my good and his glory. Tonight, when I step into his presence and reach for the soap, I will praise him for that. Ah, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? Isn't she good? <laughs> She's got another one that's really uh, a classic. Someday I'll have her read it. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for today and for the trust and confidence that we can have in you every day of our life. There's not a thing that comes into our life that takes you by surprise. There is not a thing that comes into our life in which we are not equipped for if we just avail ourselves to all that you have for us. Our Father, we pray that as we look at the passage of Scripture today that is before us, confusing, perplexing though it is, we ask that you will give us insight. May we have the confidence in your care and your keeping that these passages give us. May we be motivated aright 
to trust you in a more complete and full way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I have sent, for those of you that are coming in just a little bit late, I have sent some uh, a piece of papers around and what I'm asking to do is just write down in a phrase or whatever uh, how you know you have assurance of eternal life. What is it that you look at to know that you have eternal life? Now, the computer is probably playing games with me, so let me go ahead and... Um, Oh, okay, all right. I think we're in business. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, is among the most challenging passages of Scripture anywhere in the New Testament. And uh, I want to read it, and if any of you completely and totally understand it, when I finish reading it, you can raise your hands and say, oh yeah, I completely understand this. <laughs> Trust me, I do not believe that James ever imagined that so much would be written about this passage. But there have been gallons and gallons and gallons of ink spilt trying to explain this particular passage. I'm going to give you a possible explanation it's going to take probably a couple weeks, but uh, after I get you confused, then you can come back later on and we'll, we'll straighten it out. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? And the word... And that question is no, that faith cannot save him. Keep in mind, he's not talking about going to heaven. The word saved is used five times in the book of James. In every single case, he's not talking about being saved from hell. So he goes on, if a brother or sister is without clothes, and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use or what profit is that? Even so, faith, if it has no deeds or works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith out of your deeds, and I will show you my faith out of my deeds. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder or are fearful. But are you willing, notice the question, are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without deeds is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by deeds when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working along with his deeds and as a result of the deeds, faith was perfected or matured. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified. Probably the word vindicated would be a good word right here. Vindicated by his deeds and not by faith by itself or alone. And in the same manner, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by deeds when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without deeds or works is dead. All right. Everybody understand that passage? Good. That's why, uh, that's why we're here. That's why gallons of ink and whatever else it is have been spilled. Let me, if I may, briefly go over something with you that I think is extremely important to understand. There we go. Salvation or deliverance comes in three phases. And when you read through the Bible, you always have to ask your question, what phase are they talking about? First of all, there is justification, deliverance from the penalty of sin. Then there is sanctification, deliverance from the practice of sin. Then there is glorification, deliverance from the presence of sin. From the moment you trust Christ, onward you're going to be involved in one of these phases the next thing that we might notice is that i like to say that there are three aspects of salvation not three phases not three stages but three aspects of salvation first of all there is justification salvation the moment you trust christ as your savior then that begins the process of sanctification salvation and that takes place from the moment you trust Christ until you die and go to heaven. And then there is glorification salvation and that is the balance of eternity. Sanctification is during life, then there is death, then there is eternity. Everybody see those different aspects. You always have to ask yourself in the Bible, what phase or aspect is he talking about? Because the word saved, as we have already talked about, is a polymorphic word, which means it has a variety of meanings based on the specific context of what he is talking about. Another way to view this is that we are born physically, that is our physical life. When we reach a certain age and understand, we can trust Christ as our Savior. At that point, we are born again and we have eternal life. Sanctification process begins, and then the glorification process begins the moment we die. Now, when you come to James chapter 2, Faith and works. These are the four approaches that people can take. I am not going to put a category, but 
I'll let you figure out what church traditions hold to these. Work helps get one justified. In other words, you gotta have faith and works and you're justified. Works keep one justified. If you start having, stop having works, you can lose your salvation. I'll let you figure out who they are. Works prove one is justified. In other words, if you don't have works, it's proof positive you were never saved to begin with. Works help the justified become sanctified. Those are the four different approaches that you can have when it comes to the subject of faith and works together. Can't the last two be together? I'm sorry? Can't the last two be together? <laughs> it depends on your approach to James too, right? I'll be quiet. <laughs> it's a good thing we're friends, David. <laughs> the two greatest motivators in the life of a child of God. There are two. The two greatest motivators that you have as a child of God are number one, eternal security and assurance of salvation. Eternal security is God's provision for us. Assurance of salvation is our complete confidence in God's provision. That's important. And a person who trusts Christ as their savior can wake up every day knowing they have the first and knowing they have the second. And I am going to suggest to you that these are two of the greatest motivators that we have to live a godly life. So let me, if I may, explain them just a little bit before we get to James chapter 2. What is eternal security? What do we mean by it? Uh, a cliche that is often used for eternal security is once saved, always saved. Once you've trusted Christ, you're always part of the family of God. So, Eternal security is the provision of God that guarantees once the gift of salvation is received through faith, it is forever, it cannot be lost. That's important. Now, this work of God is not dependent or conditioned on our behavior, our experience, or our feelings. There are going to be times as a child of God that you do something and you say, a real child of God wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, they would. A true child of God would never rob a bank. Yes, they would. A true child of God would never have an affair 
Oh, yes, they would. A true child of God would never, and you fill in the blank. Yes, they would. Or you may wake up and you may feel like you're not saved. Yes, you are. Why? Well, let's go on. Eternal life cannot be lost by living badly because it was not attained by living well. Boy, that's important. It's not based on how you live, how you feel. Let me go on and emphasize if eternal life is not eternal, it has the wrong name. <laughs> that's right. It's eternal. It's forever. From the moment you trust Christ, the moment you believe. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever <clears throat> believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's eternal security. All right? Okay. What is assurance of salvation? Eternal life? God does it. You are secure as a child of God as you can possibly be. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Assurance of salvation. What is it? It is the certain and undoubting confidence and trust we have in the person, provision, and promise of Christ who gives us eternal life. You are certain, you are confident that what Jesus Christ has done for you has rescued you. Going on, it is based exclusively on the truth of God's word, not on our performance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you might be saved. You may be saved. You will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's assurance. Now, let me, if I may, go on just a little bit. How do you know that you have eternal life? It's not your experience, not your feelings, not even the results in your life. It's based exclusively on God's word. When I believe in Jesus, his person, provision, promise, I have eternal life. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute for sin. And he says, if you believe this, if you believe this promise, you have eternal life. So, we are not to have faith in our faith, but faith in the person of Christ. Christ alone should be the exclusive focus and object of our faith. We don't have faith in our faith. The faith has to have an object. That's the key. What is your focus? What are you looking to? Are you looking to Christ or are you looking to yourself?
The issue is not the degree of our faith, the amount of our faith, quality, intensity, endurance. What is the key? The key is the focus and object of our faith, which must be Christ. If someone says, some, possibly some of you are one wishing you could change the piece of paper, but then that's another story, all right. <laughs> uh, if someone is asked, how do you know how you have eternal life? How do you have assurance? If the first words out of their mouth is I, their assurance is based on the wrong thing. If the first words out of their mouth is Christ, then they have the right focus. That's key. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches. There's now neither salvation in any other, for there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So, let me go on. Nowhere in the Bible are born-again believers told to examine their life or their faith to determine if they are still part of the family of God. There's not one verse that says that. Not one verse says, you need to check your life to see if you're saved. Not one verse ever says that. But what does the Bible say? We are called upon to examine, evaluate our conduct as children of God to see if it measures up to his standard. If you have trusted Christ, you don't look at your performance and say, oh, I, I may not be saved. No, you look at your performance and say, you know, it's not measuring up to what God says. So I need to check that out. That's crucial. <clears throat> That's key, all right? Assurance is of the essence of saving faith. This is probably a phrase some of you have never heard before. What does it mean? May I suggest to you, Assurance is an indispensable part of saving faith. Assurance is an essential part of saving faith. May I suggest to you, if you're sitting here and you do not have assurance that you are going to heaven, you are not a born-again Christian because you have not trusted the promise that God gives eternal life by trusting Christ. Does everybody understand what I just said? That is a powerful, powerful statement. And if you are wrestling with assurance, it's because you have not really put your confidence in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. Any comments or questions? Uh, uh, this, this is heavy duty and straightforward. I remember, and uh, let's see, there's no one in this room 
Okay, no one in this room was at this church years and years ago. When I was still a young child in my teens, and my father was the pastor of this church, uh, there was a young girl, uh, and my father would give a salvation invitation uh, at the end of every service. And every week, this girl would come forward and get resaved, if you please, again. And it happened over and over and over. You could almost set your watch to the fact that this girl was going to go forward. Finally, my father had to sit her down and say, look, once you have trusted Christ, it's not a matter of going forward in every meeting. It's do you really believe the promise of Christ? And, you know, after about 10 or 15 times, it finally sunk into her. And she said, oh, yeah, I think I got it. I think I got it. So it's the promise and believing the promise that what God says he is going to do. And that's what believing is. It's having a full confidence and reliance on what Jesus Christ has said. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, he is saying, look folks, I'm it. Put your confidence in me and you'll have it. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though he dies, he's going to live. And then he asks a question. Do you believe this? And you remember what the response is? Yes, Lord, I, I believe. It was a settled issue. I believe what you said is true. Faith is just believing what God said he will do. Oh, all right, I've been preaching, all right? Is that right? Can you tell? <sighs> hey, we need to get to the lesson. So let's do it. Every good sermon, some are not so good, but every good sermon has illustrations in it. James is no different. The interesting thing about James chapter 2 is that the sermon illustration is not at the beginning. Every now and then, uh, my brother, who's the pastor here, he opens with a illustration or a story, and some of you probably wondered, what's, what are these stories all about? The, the story is illustrating what he's going to talk about in the sermon. I have criticized him just a little bit, and I said, Doug, Sometimes your illustrations are too long, <laughs> you know. Skip, get to the point. But, you know, hey, he and I, hey, we love each other like crazy. So uh, anyway, what James does is after he presents all of this, he gives the illustration right at the very end. And so look at verse 26. 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What is he saying? Well, let's, uh, let's go on. Here you have faith minus works equals dead faith. Dead faith. And the parallel is a body without the spirit is what? A corpse. Question. Question. Faith minus works. Is there still faith? Yes, there is. A body minus the spirit? Is there still a body? Yes, there is. Lifeless, useless, it's still there. The interesting thing that we need to ask ourselves is what is meant by the word dead? The word dead, again, is one of those polymorphic words that have a variety of meanings. You have to look at the context. Does it mean that it is inactive, useless, unprofitable, non-beneficial, or non-existent? I'm going to suggest to you that it doesn't mean non-existent. It's still there. It's just not active. It's just not useful. There's faith, but there's nothing there. Is there still faith? Yes. Let me illustrate it like this, and this is a metaphor, okay? Uh, here, let me, let me move back. This is a metaphor right here, body and spirit. That's a metaphor. He's trying to illustrate. How far do we take the metaphor? I don't know. I think you can take it too far. Let me, if I may, suggest to you. Whoops. There we go. A car without gasoline is still a car. But you can you get that car to go one inch without gasoline? You cannot. Huh? There's always one in every audience. And by that, I am going to assume that you have done a lot of pushing in your life. <laughs> As have all of us. All right. A car without a battery. Is it still a car? Yes, it is. But you know, a car without gasoline is a car, but basically it's just a picture. Hey, look at that beautiful car. It's useless. It's not going to do anything for you. And the point that James seems to be making is faith plus works is useful, profitable. In fact, faith plus works is going to enhance and make your faith useful. Uh, we're going to get to that, all right? Here's another illustration. There's a bike. A bike without a rider is it still a bike? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, it is. But that bike isn't going anywhere without a rider. Now, the reason I know that is I have a mountain bike and I have a road bike. And when I'm not on them, they're just sitting in the garage. And it's not until I get on them and start pedaling that they become a useful tool. Mountain bike, road bike, whatever kind of bike you have, there's got to be a rider for the bike to have usefulness. And that's exactly what James is saying when he says about the profitability of works. All right, let's go on. The word faith occurs 17 times in the book of James. Not once does it have a modifier. And yet, commentaries, and there are a slug of them, insist that they've got to modify the word with certain adjectives by saying false faith, shallow faith, fake faith, superficial faith, deceptive faith, real faith, genuine faith, true faith, transforming faith, saving faith. But not one time in 17 usages of the word faith in the book of James does James ever add a modifier. Faith is faith and the goal is not to have faith in our faith, but to enlarge the object of our faith, and that is Jesus Christ. All right, let's get into the passage for just a moment. If you have your Bible, look with me and follow, because when you look at verse 14, you have a question mark. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Question mark. That's a question. What good is faith without works? Question mark. Notice, if you will, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body. What use is faith? Question mark. So he starts out with two questions. Question number one. Faith without works doesn't benefit us. Doesn't benefit us personally. And he goes on in the next couple of verses. Faith without works doesn't benefit others either. In other words, there has got to be a connection between faith and works. You can't just say, hey, I'm a born-again believer, and sit in a cocoon and say, that's all I need. What James is suggesting to us is that faith without deeds or works is of no benefit to yourself, or others. I do not believe he is trying to say that works are going to prove that you are a born-again Christian. Works are going to enhance your Christian experience. 
Works are going to grow that faith. Uh, let me illustrate like this. Uh, all my life, and some of you are the same way, I have, uh, I have been conscientious about seeking to stay in shape physically. And uh, I will have to tell you, it is a battle the older I get. And all of you understand that. Got to eat right, sleep right, exercise right. What if any one of us were to just start sitting in our easy chair with the remote in hand and clicking 24 hours a day? What is going to happen to our muscles? Atrophy. We're just going to shrivel up. Exercise. Oh, I once had a professor. I won't tell you who he was. He says, every time I think about exercising, I lay down until the feeling goes away. <laughs> You know, there, there, is, there is a problem. By the way, he lived to be in his 90s, but then that's another story. <laughs> uh, the whole point is, if you don't do something, if you're not active, it's going to fade away. If I am driving down the road, and I see a dead animal on the side of the road, one of the conclusions I can come to, at least I better come to this conclusion, is other than the fact that that animal got hit by a car or something happened to it, the conclusion I better come to is that animal used to be alive. It's not alive anymore. So may I suggest to you that faith, if there is not vitality and activity to it, it can potentially die. Uh, I was the pastor of this church for quite a few years. I have a list at home. I, I got it out here, oh, several months back. Every family that has ever come to this church, I'd write their name down. Every family. Goes to about two pages long. And some of them have moved away. I understand that. Others of them are still in the valley and nothing. Haven't seen them? Eh, I might see them at a funeral. Oh, yes, Mid Valley is still my church. <clears throat> and they call when they need us. But that's the only time. Is their faith? a useful faith. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Why? Because you've got to put shoe leather to your faith for that faith to grow. Not to prove that you're saved, but just to keep your faith active. Does everybody understand where I'm heading on this? And the questions that he asks in these two, uh, these three verses, what benefit is it <coughs> If your faith does not have deeds, 
or works of obedience that are energizing that faith. I guarantee you that if you step out, quote, and I'm using a cliche here, if you step out on faith, your faith is going to grow, particularly when you see God starting to work. But you can be like a car without gas or a bike without a rider, and you can just sit. I once heard a guy say, you cannot steer a standing ship. The ship has got to be moving. And as long as it's moving, there's this growth. Saved by the bill. We're going to get back to the next section.